Grant, Lord, during this Advent season that we might know the peace of Christ as we wait, the love of Christ as we act, and the grace of Christ as we speak. Now give us ears to hear your word, hands to do your work, feet to walk your path, and a heart for all your people. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson is taken from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7, beginning with verse 10. The word of the Lord. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Jenny. Well, Merry Christmas. If I haven't met you, my name's Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. And I can actually remember the first time that I was here on a a Christmas uh, season, Advent 2004. I was sitting way in the back pew, hearing all about how, how significant the time of year this was. But in reality, for me, it was just December. It was, it was cold. There were finals to study for. Uh, by this time, I'd, I'd been a Christian for, you know, a, a while. I knew that Christmas was about the birth of Jesus, but somehow the significance of that was just somehow lost on me. Like there was a way I was supposed to feel about it that, that I just wasn't. And I felt like maybe I was just missing something, like there was a disconnect. Maybe this morning you feel the same way, and, and if so, you picked a good day to come. Uh, this past month, we've actually been looking at the women found in the family line of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, what you could call the mothers of Jesus. Each of them in their own way uh, shows us something about who Jesus is and why he came on Christmas. And today we come to the most famous one of them all, his own mother, Mary. Mary is the actually only one of Jesus' disciples that was there at the beginning and the end, at the manger and at the cross. It was her words that prompted Jesus' first miracle, and in many ways, she is both the first and model disciple, showing us what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And if there's anyone that can help us grasp the meaning and significance of Christmas, it's Mary, the one who first received the message of Christmas herself. And our story begins here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In your pew Bibles, it starts on page 1,588. This is the Gospel of our Lord. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at this, at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. There's a lot going on in this passage, really more than you can address in any one sermon. So this morning I just want to look at two things that this passage can help us to grasp. The message of Christmas and what it means to believe it. And to help us with that, it tells us something about Jesus and something about Mary. Uh, first, it tells us something about Jesus. Right after mentioning his name, the angel tells Mary in verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. That, that title, Most High, is a way that God is referred to in the Old Testament when Abraham is speaking with Melchizedek. God Most High. In verse 35, it's made even more explicit. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. They might wonder, okay, why are we speaking about an unborn child in these terms? And then the angel gives the answer when he says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how this birth is going to come about. This birth we brought about not by man, but by God Himself, by the Holy Spirit. Because from the very beginning, this is going to be no ordinary child. By the same Holy Spirit, Elizabeth prophesies in verse 43, calling the baby not yet born her Lord. Title used of God Himself. One echoed throughout the rest of the story of Jesus in the Gospels. A statement that really makes explicit what the rest of all of this has already implied, that the baby to be born is going to be God in the flesh. The one that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about would be called Emmanuel, literally God with us. Or as others have put it, the one who is infinite was about to become an infant. The Creator is going to come and dwell with His creatures. The Eternal One entering human history like the author of life writing himself into the story, like William Shakespeare writing himself into one of his own plays. In essence, that's the message of Christmas. God leaving the ultimate gated community to move into the neighborhood. It's the message that Mary receives about the baby that she's going to bear, the message about Jesus. And if God really took on flesh, that means something. It means, first of all, that God is knowable. It means you don't have to guess about what God is really like. And it's important because the reality is everybody in this room is a theologian. Everyone has beliefs about God, and those beliefs come from somewhere. 
I know when I was little, a school kid, I fancied myself to be a bit of a philosopher, uh, self-taught, of course. Um, When I found myself pondering the question of God, I figured, well, I could figure out how he operated, but if I do, I'm afraid what's going to happen. Because if I discover the truth, what is he going to do to me? Will he zap me before I can tell everybody else and give away all of God's secrets? The reality is that my thoughts about God were probably shaped more by watching spy movies and reading sci-fi books than anything else. And yet forming your own thoughts about God isn't just kid stuff. And it's not something that we really grow out of either. Last week I was reading this article by Juanita Ryan. She's a therapist living in California who's also written a couple dozen Bible studies, including one that's called Distorted Images of God. In the article, she observes how many abuse survivors see God as abusive, as as a bully. This is the God who carries a big stick and enjoys using it to control, threaten, and punish people. The one who's going to punish you if you misbehave. In a similar way, many who grow up in demanding, graceless homes tend to assume that God is equally demanding and graceless. Somebody that you could appease with your good behavior, but not somebody that you can be close with, not somebody you can let your guard down around. With distorted images of God, they discovered that it comes distorted images of ourselves. She goes on to write that if we see God as a vengeful God, we're likely to see ourselves as always bad and always deserving punishment. If we see God as a person with impossible expectations, then we're likely to see ourselves as a failure and never good enough for anyone. How we image God in our hearts and our minds really matters. Meanwhile, some, as a result of their negative religious experiences, have adopted a form of agnosticism about God, believing that there's probably some higher power out there But the way that organized religion has messed things up, we can't really know anything for sure. What all of these people need, what really all of us need, is a clear, unmistakable image of what God is really like. And that's actually what we find in Christmas, because that baby born to Mary would one day grow up to say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, has seen God. As the Apostle Paul puts it, he is the image of, of the invisible God, as the author of the Hebrews writes it, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. If Jesus really is who he says he is, who his first followers believed him to be, who the angel announced him to be, then throughout the Bible, God has given us an addition to all the other revelation about himself, not just one, but four detailed autobiographies that we call Gospels. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus says, look at me. Start with me. So what do we see when we take a closer look at at Jesus as the Christ of Christmas? Maybe not always what we'd expect. In my early 20s, uh, most of you didn't know me, but uh, I wasn't always that easy to get along with. Uh, Partly because I believe I had discovered a hidden spiritual gift not mentioned in Scripture, the spiritual gift of rebuke. Um, I could examine your life from a distance, if necessary, quickly find out what biblical principle I didn't think you were living out, quote a verse to you just very quickly, and then impatiently wait for you to feel so bad that you had to change. And I did it so well 
uh, and frequently, often making false assumptions based on mere perceptions, that my roommate had to move out, that the organization I was working for had to put me on probation. But about the same time, I started reading in the Gospel of John this interaction that Jesus had with somebody who actually was guilty of the sin that they were accused of. And his response kind of threw me for a loop. I was reading in the Gospel of John uh, where Jesus is teaching in John 8 in the temple in Jerusalem when a group of his opponents interrupt him. You know, one moment, everyone's eyes are fixed on Jesus. Everyone's neck is leaning in. They're just hanging on his every word. And the next moment, those necks have turned. And their eyes are now fixed on a woman introduced to everybody by Jesus' opponents who drags her before them and says, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law commands us to execute her, to stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? You just imagine what it was like for the woman there. You can imagine eyes averted down, away from the piercing stares as she felt the shame of her sin washing over her as she is publicly humiliated. You can imagine the cold sweat down her brow as she fears what's going to happen next. Would this be her last day? You can imagine the clenched teeth of anger, knowing that she was just a pawn to these people, a way to trap Jesus in a response that would get him in hot water with the Jews if he says one thing and the Romans if he says another. Standing before Jesus on the one hand was a group of men with all the power and religious influence of spiritual insiders the same people you would normally want on your side. On the other, a woman with all the guilt and shame and fear of a spiritual outsider, the kind of person that good religious people wanted to keep their distance from. What I saw in Jesus as I read on was one who actually took the side of the vulnerable, not the powerful. The outsider, not the insider. Not the side of the one who was most like me, but the side of the one that was being publicly shamed by the one most like me. Not taking the side of the bullies, but confronting the bullies with their own weakness, saying, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Soon, all of her accusers were gone. It's nothing left but Jesus and the woman, who then baffles me again with his closing words to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and sin no more. What? How does that work? Time out, Jesus. Okay, did Jesus really just call someone's actions sin, like I like to do, tell them that they should stop, like I like to do, and then say in the same breath that he did not condemn them? How can he say those things together? I'm thinking in my mind, aren't you supposed to feel condemned when your sin is acknowledged? Isn't condemnation God's basic disposition towards us? It's like, Jesus, you're messing up my view of God. Looking at Jesus eventually helped me to see that my relational problems with others were actually rooted in a distorted view of God of my own. And that had led to a distorted view of myself. If you've ever wondered how angry, self-righteous people live with themselves, not very well. See, the wrath that people felt for me was just an overflow of what was already going on in my own heart. The frown on my face simply reflected the ways that I imagined God's heart towards me. As I looked closer at Jesus, 
I saw God in a way that I'd never imagined him. We see it in the life of Jesus, but we also see it in the teachings of of Jesus. The one whose parables paint a picture of a God who's not distant, but one who's actually compassionate. Not a God who abandons, but one who pursues. As we see in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15, one who leaves behind the 99 to pursue the one, like a father who runs to embrace the wayward child who's come home. You want to know God? Jesus says, look at me. Because of what happened that first Christmas. In Jesus, we find God at his most knowable. We also find a God who knows us. See, throughout the life of Jesus, we find that God knows us in every way. He knows the full breadth of human experience firsthand. A life that defies the image of a God who's somehow distant or out to lunch. Living as a Jew in Roman-occupied Palestine, Jesus knew what it meant to experience oppression. At his trial, he experienced injustice firsthand. Throughout his life, he experienced poverty and instability, once saying that he has nowhere to lay his head. He experienced the rejection and betrayal of those closest to him. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied knowing him. All of his other disciples scattered when he needed them the most. Not to mention the fact that he lived in prolonged singleness at a time when those literally half of his age were already married. He knew what it was like to be tired, to be hungry, to be thirsty. In the words of the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness. And as times of weakness often leave us vulnerable to various temptations, we're not surprised that Hebrews goes on to describe Jesus as one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. Through the life of Jesus, we find that God knows the joys and the sorrows of the human experience firsthand. He, he was born into a family, and so he knows both the warmth and the tension that can come from family dynamics. He knows what it's like to be misjudged and misunderstood, including by members of his own family. We know from the Gospel of Mark that not all of his family members believed in him at first. In one scene, the family says that he is out of his mind and treated him as such. But with one of his relatives, he shared a particularly unique, close bond. We know him today as John the Baptist. You see, Jesus and John went way back, actually before they were born. Remember that baby that we read about uh, in verse 41, the one who leaped in Elizabeth's womb? Uh, Well, that was John the Baptist, the one who leaped in the womb at the sound of the voice of Mary. It was 30 years into their friendship when it was none other than John the Baptist who had baptized Jesus and introduces him as the one that God's people have been waiting for for their Messiah, the Christ, David's everlasting son, the one whose kingdom will never end as the angel announces. Many of Jesus' followers were actually first John's followers until he selflessly directed them away from him and to Jesus, saying he must increase, I must decrease, totally removing himself from the equation, totally deferring all the influence that he had, all the following, so that another could have it instead. These kinds of lifelong and then some friends, they don't come around that often. But one day, some of his followers came to Jesus with heavy hearts and heavier news. John had been killed. 
Matthew's Gospel tells us something that I never quite realized until recently. Right after hearing these news, it says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hear that. Jesus heard the news that his best friend was just killed. And what does he do? He withdrew privately to a solitary place. Jesus needed a moment alone. Have you ever had news so heart-wrenching that you needed the same? You know what he was feeling, but he knows what you were feeling. In Jesus, we have a God who knows suffering. He knows loss. He knows our pain. In John 11, we see him openly weeping when his friend Lazarus had died. In the words of Psalm 34, God is near to the brokenhearted as one who in Jesus would know human heartbreak firsthand. But to become knowable in this way, to know us in this way, took becoming fully human, becoming susceptible to pain, disease, and death. In a word, as, as Tim Keller put it, God became breakable. In fact, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus held up some unleavened bread, broke it before his disciples, and said to them, this is my body, broken for you. Something they would only fully understand the next day, when the baby born to Mary would become the man hanging on the cross. Not because he had done wrong, but because we had done wrong. Not on accident, but on purpose, so that those whose trust is in his perfect life in place of their imperfect life, his paying for their sin in place of their own efforts trying to do so, can finally be reconciled with God, can draw near to him. See, in the message of Christmas, we see what God was willing to do to know us personally and for us to be able to know him. As Rankin Wilburn put it, God's not hiding, but he can only be found in the place that he chooses to be found, at the manger and at the cross. It's a reality that makes that reflection a quote in your worship guide from Harris Lenowitz all the more profound. Speaking about Jesus, ultimately, he writes, the Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, does God care about me? And in the birth and the life and the death of Jesus, we hear a definitive yes. That's the message of Christmas. The message first announced to Mary. So how can her story help us in the midst of our own story? Well, notice uh, the word spoken to Mary in verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. You see, in the biblical sense, to be blessed is to experience life the way that it's actually meant to be. And Mary is described as blessed. And why? Because she believed the message of Christmas, a message with endless implications for a person's life, like entire sermon series have been preached on just that. And yet it's a message that does no good if we don't really believe it to our core. So how does she get there? It's really the same way that we get there, and it's the same whether you're already a Christian or not. First, she wrestles with the message. In verse 29, we read that Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words, and wondered what kind of greeting this could be. The word wondered is actually what's key in there. 
in verse 29, as we read that, uh, we know that in the original language, the word wondered is this word dialogizomai. And for those who don't speak Greek, it's literally to logic through something, to reason through something, to try to make sense of it all. That was her first response. You can almost imagine it, uh, the thought process that was going through her head as the angel greeted her. It's like, wait, but time out. Wait a minute. Is this happening? Is this real? Uh, wait a minute. Okay. Am I seeing things? Nope. Eyes are working fine. Okay. Am I, am I having an, uh, hallucinations? Nope. Don't do drugs. Haven't been invented. Um, let me see. Am I dreaming? Ow. Okay. Not dreaming. That hurt. I mean, the angel coming with a message wasn't expected any more in her day than it would have been in our day. She dealt with it the same way that you would. She reasoned through it. She tried to make sense of it all. She asked the hard questions to try to find out what's fitting. That takes, that takes work. It takes more than punny one-liners. A number of people over the years that I've talked to have, have said something like this to me. It's like, well, you know, my mom believes. My, my brother does. My husband does. But I, but I just can't believe. Or others have said, you know what? I wish I could believe, but, but I just can't. And maybe that's actually some of you in here today. Well, belief is actually more than simply thinking. But it's not less than thinking. In many ways, it actually starts there. That's the first step, what Tim Keller describes as furious thinking. Not just pursuing any number of endless philosophical tangents, but actually trying to answer the core questions. Who is Jesus? And what do I do with him? For many, it wasn't just the angel's appearance. For Mary, it wasn't just the appearance of the angel that she had to wrestle with but also the rest of his message. The angel tells her in verse 31, you're going to have a baby. But virgins like Mary don't have babies back then any more than they do today. You see, she understood the message loud and clear, but she couldn't see how it was possible. So in verse 34, she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, she shares her honest doubts. See, belief often follows our own honest doubting. I know that some have learned from bad experiences that doubts aren't necessarily welcomed you know, in churches, but the reality is the doubts come in at least two different forms, and they usually come in the form of a question. They can come in the form of rhetorical questions, which aren't really honest questions. Uh, rhetorical questions don't really want an answer, but they sound like it. They're not really meant to start a conversation. They're really meant to end a conversation. They come from a posture of pride and cynicism and combativeness. They're they're actually rooted in fear. They pretend to be honest inquiries when actually they're deathly afraid that there might actually be a good answer to the question. Honest doubting, though, can actually take a very different form, but also in the form of a question. How can this be? Mary asks. Honest questions that really want an answer. They come from a posture of humility and they actually take courage to ask. That's what we see in Mary's question. And God doesn't shy away from honest questions or honest doubting. In fact, in the very next verse, we see a response that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, Mary, you might be looking for what do I need to do for this amazing thing to happen to me? What are the next steps so that I can merit this favor of God? God doesn't give her through the angel advice. She gives her he gives her news. 
declares not what you need to do, but what God will do. It's not going to be about what you do, Mary, but about what God will accomplish through you because nothing is impossible with God. It's a statement I've referenced myself. It's a statement that's brought many people help over the years, but it's a statement that only exists in the Bible to begin with in response to someone's honest doubting and honest questions. Mary doesn't get a detailed explanation of it all. She doesn't hear all the intricacies of it. She doesn't have all of her curiosity satisfied, but belief isn't really about knowing all the answers or how every single piece of it works. If that were the case, nobody would ever really experience it. And the reality is it's not just about figuring things out on your own either. Because right after hearing this message, Mary seeks out community. In verse 39, it says that at that time, Mary got ready hurried, hurried to see Elizabeth, the one whose words would actually strengthen her and confirm the message that she just received. In fact, the Magnificat, that great prayer of faith of Mary that we had as part of the service earlier, didn't come right after she heard the news from the angel, but came after her conversation with Mary, after she got in community. So we don't walk the life of faith alone and we don't grow in our belief alone. And in case we forgot, Mary, a poor girl living in a rural community, was just told that she's about to become an unwed pregnant teen in a highly religious community. She's going to need friends. She's going to need others. She's going to need a community. Whatever your lot in life this morning, you need others. Mary did. So do we. Finally, what we, we actually see her belief from her response in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. In the end, that's where real belief leads. Sincere surrender. You see, Mary's response is essentially, hey, whatever comes with this, whatever is involved, I'm in. You see, at this point, she doesn't know, uh, she has to know that a journey that begins with being an unwed pregnant teen who's probably not going to get the benefit of the doubt It's not always going to be an easy road to travel. She doesn't know what all costs might be involved. She doesn't know all the details, but it doesn't matter. She's in. See, if you really believe the message of Christmas, that God really knows you and really cares about you, that's what follows. See, believing the message of Christmas means yielding control of your life, not your ways, but his ways. Not your agenda, but his agenda. A couple of years back, a friend of mine from high school also got to welcome a son. Uh, and he gave him a name that reflected his own longings and his own aspirations. He called him Dane Alexander. Dane as in the giant dogs that we call Great Danes. Alexander as in Alexander the Great. See a theme? He wanted his son to be great. So Dane Alexander... And as the one who created him, he was given the right to exercise that authority over his son, naming rights, if you will. And as we look back at our passage, when the angel appears to Mary, he says that her son also will be great, but unlike my friend, she doesn't get to choose his name. Rather, she's actually told what his name will be. She doesn't get to call him whatever she wants and exercise authority that way. She doesn't get naming rights because ultimately... It's he who created her. As another pastor put it, 
Jesus is the only child who at their birth was actually older than his parents. You don't manage him. He manages you. If we believe the message of Christmas, we realize that we don't just get to make of Jesus whatever we want, not when we realize that it was actually he who made us. We don't get to seek uh, our own agenda and look to him to serve our agenda, but instead we seek him to learn his agenda because we realize his agenda is actually better. When we find that it's his agenda that we actually are seeking, that's when we know that we believe the message of Christmas. So how do you get there? How is real faith and real belief born and grown? Well, it's just like we see in Mary, furious thinking, honest doubting, life in community, and sincere surrender. The way we learn to find the strength to actually take those steps, steps that actually help us draw nearer to God, is by remembering the steps that God took to draw nearer to you. Some of you may have heard the story of uh, Colleen Dykeman. Uh, in case you hadn't, living in New York, one Monday morning, garbage day in her neighborhood, she panicked when she couldn't find her rings and realized that she must have accidentally swept her engagement ring and her wedding band into the trash while she was cooking. She said, I knew in an instant that I threw them out because I knew I had cleaned up the night before. Frantically, she followed the garbage truck down the dump. Don't know if it was running or in a car. However she did it, when she finally got to the dump, she found herself tearfully begging them to stop before the trash and treasure that was hers would be incinerated. One of the workers there described it. She was visibly upset. She was ripping through the garbage, a dis- disgusting stuff. And for hours, for hours she went through a mountain of muck as she looked for the $5,000 rings, but it wasn't just the cost. These were rings that were placed on her finger with love nearly 20 years ago. They weren't just valuable treasures. They were signs of a promise, a promise of love. There was no price you could truly put on these rings. After about four hours, with hopes waning, her trash bags finally surfaced. At first, it looked like they weren't there, but that didn't stop the search. Until eventually, in the midst of all the smell, all the weariness, all the aching muscles of the endless searching and the tired, painful fingers, one more bag was opened. And there they were buried between soggy cereal and slimy meat was the literal diamond in the rough. So she started to cry. One witness said it was just beautiful. It was like out of a movie, like one of the coolest things that I'd ever seen in my life. Because now the rings were back where they belong, back with who they belong. Friends, that's actually a picture of Christmas. See, in the person of Jesus, God also sought something valuable. But to retrieve it meant enduring far more than the foul stench of even six tons of garbage. To rescue his treasure meant diving headlong into another very real mess. Our own world of sin and suffering and death. To experience all that we experience and yet more. But it wasn't for the sake of jewelry that was lost, but people. Not for symbols of love, but for the objects of his love. Because what began that first Christmas would eventually lead to the cross. Like the story of Pauline Dykeman. 
we celebrate on Christmas was an act that left no doubt of the love that's behind it. Friends, that's what God did at Christmas to draw near to you so that you can take that next step and draw near to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ you show us that you are not distant, you are not out to lunch, you are not indifferent, you are not cruel, but you are loving. You know us. You know what it took to draw near to us. You saw that cost. You looked at us in all of our brokenness and you looked to what it would cost through the cost. You looked to us and you looked to the cross and you looked to us and you did it anyway. Father, remind us of your love. Meet us here at this table as yet another image, another encounter with the God who draws near to us so that we could find the courage to take the next step, whatever that would be for any of us, to draw closer, nearer to you this Christmas season. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.